Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil doers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of God. In June, we were to spend three weeks in Psalm 27. And on the third week, I got sick, and then I was traveling for the summer. So some of you were not here for the first two weeks. Most of you were, but have no memory of it. We are going to go ahead with the third week in this short mini-series, and what I'm saying today doesn't depend on the first two weeks, but the, the theme we were looking at as we were going through the same psalm each week was the idea of seeking God. And that in verse, the second part of verse 8, when, when the writer of the psalm, presumably David, says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. He's getting at a priority that he has here. There's one thing he's asking. He's He's writing from a context where he's troubled. He's talking about enemies. He's talking about fear. And the way he's dealing with this is to have a certain priority to seek God. But he's not unique, or he's at least not meant to be unique. He's not just that type of person that does this. But he does it in response. The first part of verse 8 is, you, God, have said, seek my face. He's doing it because God encourages it. God invites us. And so the whole of scripture is in some ways an invitation. Draw near, come to know God, spend time with God. But sending Jesus into the world was explicitly that. Jesus who said, follow me. He's taking us somewhere. He's bringing us close to God who says, seek. You will find, ask, it will be given to you. 
Uh, and it's one of the things that is easy for us to take for granted and neglect. So that's why we've been talking about it. And so in the first week, we talked about seeking God for strength, where when you're afraid, when you have real troubles in life, there is a kind of spiritual life that actually doesn't enable you to escape, but strengthens you to go back. And then in the second week, we talked about how worship is not simply a Christian duty, part of the checklist of, of our responsibilities, but his desire to, to draw near to gaze upon the beauty of God, that truth and beauty and goodness and these things that we, we can get a vision of as we have a sense of the reality of God actually restores our soul. It's what we need for life in this world. Today, what I want to talk about is inquiry. So that's the last part of verse four, the one thing that he asks of the Lord that he will seek after, that he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and here's today's focus, to inquire in his temple. And as we talk about inquiry, I want to highlight two aspects of it. One is questions, and the other is reflection. He's drawing near, he wants to go where God is, and the first thing is because he has questions. So that's where I'm going to begin. All of us have questions. Some of them are questions about God or for God or are clearly related to God. Um, is God real? Is God trustworthy? Why is the world um, uh, continuing to have such terrible things? Why uh, has this happened to me? What am I supposed to do? Those questions, I think, for people inclined towards religion make sense. But the daily questions can feel a little bit disconnected. So do I quit my job? Do I date this person? Do I watch the Barbie movie again? Uh, do I uh, buy a new couch? Whatever it is you're grappling with this week, coming to church and working that out in the context, it, you know, we, we default to a kind of reality where either we need God or we don't. And if we don't need God, we're not going to ask because we could just do it. God feels irrelevant. Praying feels like well, I, could, I would rather spend the time just doing it than sitting and talking about it rather than doing it. And then there's the other extreme where we pray when there's nothing we can do. We're utterly helpless. So God, do for me the thing I cannot do for myself. And to a certain degree, both of those extremes are legitimate. God tells us to ask him for those things that we cannot do for ourselves. So maybe you did not pray as you put your, together your applications, but as soon as you put it in the mail, there's a realization you've lost control of the process. Some admissions officer is now going to read your materials. And that's when you remember to pray, Lord, work in the heart of this admissions officer with favor as they read my documents. And so on the one part, I didn't necessarily need the Lord's guidance, but on the other part, I really do. The reality is most of life is lived in the middle where the picture of the Bible is actually nothing we do can be done apart from God, that we depend on God for every breath we take. So why would we not be mindful of God in the simple, ordinary things? Even if we don't, even if we're not confused, even if we don't feel incompetent, why would we not be seeking God to be with us as we go through life? Uh, but often with the big things, the helpless things, we throw out a question and the hope is God that you will do this thing for me. And sometimes what God is doing is giving you an answer of what you should do next or equipping you. And so God sometimes does for us in remarkable, gracious ways what we absolutely cannot do. But often there is a dialogue. Lord, I feel helpless, and over time you find that God is not doing for you, but leading you through, doing for you, but also helping you do. And so, so that kind of prayer life, that kind of inquiry, where there's a more consistent doing life with God, 
that then enables you to come before God. So, so in verse seven, this be gracious, that's the humble appeal, but his request is answer me. He's coming with questions or, or things that, that he doesn't know what to do or feels helpless about. But verse 11, teach me your way. There's, there's an assumption that drawing near to God is not simply to tell God what to do, but hoping that in fellowship with God, there will be discipleship. I will learn. You will instruct me. You will answer me with direction or provision or help or support. Uh, there's a variety of things there. And so, so this is important, and prayer has always been challenging. But I think one of the reasons it's important for us as a 21st century community in a city like New York to talk about this is because prayer, I think, in some ways is getting harder. So prayer is never easy. It's challenging. Some people are better at it than others, but we're all called to do it. But it requires patience. It requires perseverance. And uh, not all of us are good at that. But, but now, having something like being still, when you come with a question, the reason that we don't want to pray about things is we think that the, what we need most is answers, information. And we could sit here and talk about the greatness of God, but the reality of Google is much more useful if you just want to put in a few phrases and get some information back to sit with God for an hour and not be sure he's hearing you and work through it and be watchful and risk leaving without having advanced anything, 10 minutes on the computer may feel like a better use of time. And what's happening is we're being formed in a way where faith that we need uh, once you really grasp the reality of who God is and what he can do and the beauty and pleasure of walking with God, you, you would not want to forfeit that. But maintaining that reality is hard. And so it seems like just to get things done in the fullness of life, uh, there are better things to do than spend our time praying. Um, but the reality is we need more than information. Google could give you lots of facts and could help you sort them, but Google will not help you. Google will not encourage you when you take those facts, try to apply them, and then fail. God is not going to fill you with uh, a download of information, but if you walk with God, there's a learning process that takes time, and that's where we are weakening as a society, and we're, we're weakening that way because of good things. Uh, I'm somebody who likes a full and busy life, which is why I'm a city person. I'm somebody who likes the advantages that technology offers, so the issue is not to be anti-technology, but to be aware how our use of technology is forming us and then to recognize that not only is it making certain things that are valuable harder, but those valuable things are all the more crucial to make sure that technology plays a positive role in our lives, for example. Uh, just last week, there was yet another article, this in the Wall Street Journal. So, so the journalist who wrote the article was talking about this study these two universities just published about the effects of short videos on child development. And what the journalist was writing about is, is the fact that TikTok was growing in increasing popularity, but YouTube, in the grand scheme of things, was providing something positive and that kids would spend 15 minutes watching a video to learn how to play a game. And now because of YouTube shorts, um, now it's back to the 15 second to 60 minute burst, which is fine. People are drawn to it for right reasons, but it's that dopamine addiction of the stimulation of something exciting, which means that outside of this very carefully crafted 30 seconds, the rest of life is boring. So in the article, there was a report of a father who has a kid who loves basketball and used to watch a basketball game. And in the course of the last year, no longer watches the game, but goes to the highlights reel on YouTube TV. He wants 
one or two minutes of the best things that happened, but to sit through the drudgery of just watching the back and forth. Of course, the, the implications of being raised in an article like that is what about our education system if people can't read a book? In the church, we think, well, what about if people just want a quick burst of something spiritual, but how are we going to really mature and grow in depth? And it's not simply that something that the church values is being threatened, but at this point, the church is offering something crucial, which is the discipline of a prayer life that makes sure that you are weaving into your life, being still, being quiet, thinking carefully, which then means you could enjoy short bursts of videos, you can learn from them, but you can also be oriented to, towards the complexity of life and not need a quick, simple answer for everything. So the discipline of prayer, of, of seeking God for answers is not only harder, but it's perhaps in a particular way more important now. So I want to encourage that, that you would devote yourself uh, to that kind of patient life, even as you, you, you look in the, uh, the beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve, no smartphone, no chat GPT. Uh, but the starts of even impatience there. So one of the foundational stories in the Bible is the temptation, Adam and Eve with the serpent. So God has given them all things, has provided for them, and even given, given them teaching. Everything is good, but here's one tree, don't eat of that. And uh, it's not simply that they didn't have wisdom or, or logic, but they were given understanding. If you eat of that, you will die. So there's a consequence, trust me on this. Um, so this, in the story, a serpent comes and, and kind of spins things, makes them give, a, give it a look and think, is this really the case? It's always easy when you're not there to think you would have done differently, and I don't presume I would have done differently, but for the sake of thinking, what, what went wrong that I could learn from? One of the things that they failed to do was to inquire of God. So God spoke to them, God provided for them, God instructed them. Why would it not be safe or reasonable to ask God, especially the next day or whenever the time has passed, God appears? It seems that God regularly visited Adam and Eve. So was the problem that they thought for themselves? No, the problem is God gave them an instruction that they didn't fully understand. So why not say to the serpent, actually, that sounds reasonable. I desire what's in the tree. It looks good. It makes sense. Let me just wait until God visits and then say, Lord, you had told me not to eat of the tree. You warned me that I wouldn't die. But is it actually because you're afraid I will be like you? That would be a good conversation to have. In the way that a salesperson offers you a deal, but then tells you if you step out the doors, <laughs> the deal is off. Um, the pressure to make quick decisions is not always good. Sometimes it is. Um, but we want the kind of life where we're growing and maturing, where we're not a sucker for the thing that's in front of us that's most appealing and most stimulating. We all know that that's a miserable way to live, and yet we're being formed, and the next generation is being formed precisely with that vulnerability. The habit of prayer, to be able to, to say, I'm going to come with a question where there's not a clear answer, and I'm speaking to a God who doesn't respond verbally. How is that a place to work things out? And yet, it is. And so what I want to encourage is, first of all, to recognize the importance of a devotional life so that you just know that it's valuable. If you find yourself thinking, I would, I would be better spending my time doing something rather than sitting and trying to experience God, to know that actually sitting in the presence of God and pursuing him is in the big picture of your life, something very valuable. So just knowing that then leads to the second thing, which is make it enough of a priority that you work it into your schedule. 
And for some of you, you pray well and you have a flexible schedule, you could do it every day. Some of you are in a season of life where it really needs to be a once a month thing or a once a week thing and you have to set it up or some of you it's just difficult enough. Um, but if it's important, what are the steps you can take to make sure that you're not just keeping yourself stimulated with whatever it has because your goal is just to exist without being too exhausted and not to do the important things like seeking God in an intentional way. But here's the last thing, just on some quick tips, which is this is something that we need to learn and practice. It's never been easy, uh, and it's not easy for all people. Some people, um, you just don't, you have a quick thinking mind, and so sitting still in prayer is hard. But one of the challenges right now is we're being weakened in that if something is hard, we just, we're losing the ability to endure. And there is a component of endurance in the spiritual life that will mature you, that will strengthen you. So don't sit there and spend your time thinking about what a terrible Christian you are or what a bad spiritual person you are or how incompetent you are in certain spiritual disciplines, but just recognize it's a practice. You need to devote regular time, you need to do it. And the focus is not you and how good you're doing, the focus is seeking God. So just redirect. If you feel like you're failing, stop, take a breath and read a book about it, talk to people about it. If you find that you pray better with others than by yourself, take steps to make sure that you're seeking to inquire of God. And part of it is there are things, decisions you need to make. There are things you need that you don't have. There are things you need to be asking God for and about. So don't neglect the privilege. So that's the first thing. Uh, the desire to inquire of the Lord in verse four has a component of asking questions, wanting answers. But here's the second thing. There's a component of reflection. And maybe I've already been leaning too much into that. Um, but I do think that we are, are in need of being the kind of people that are reflective, that think deeply, that observe, that take in, that think through, that gain wisdom. Christianity is meant to encourage and grow that. We have a Bible to study. We have a community to talk about. We have a life and its complexity to engage. And we have patterns and practices to, to keep going so that as we mature, we gain wisdom and strength. Prayer is a place to be still. It's a place to reflect. It's a place to think. So whether or not you feel like you need God's intervention, to simply be before God with your life and, and include thanksgiving and worship and prayer for others and these various things creates the very healthy kind of context that makes you better at making more reasonable decisions if decisions are one of the things that you're uh, currently grappling with. So in verse four, the one thing I have asked that I will seek after, there's a priority here. He's recognizing with all that's going on in life, I need to stay grounded in the most important things. And, and, and a, in a devotional life that has us reflecting on the big pictures of life puts us in a place that we're better to prepare to deal with the smaller things. And sometimes what feels like the biggest thing in your life in the grand scheme of things is not as big as it feels. Um, but sometimes you realize that a series of ordinary decisions made well sets you up better. So, so having that framework, you don't wanna make important decisions when you're afraid, when you're angry, when you're tired and need relief. But that's where most of us are most of the time. And so like it or not, you're looking for an apartment, you visit 10. <laughs> The process was so exhausting. You're having to choose between noisy neighbors, rats and roaches, you know, the smoking neighbor, whatever it is. It's like there's, there's no obvious perfect thing, although there was one obvious perfect thing, but it's $10,000 over your monthly budget. 
And uh, so you need to make that decision when you're exhausted without knowing the future. Um, a prayer time to help clear out the exhaustion, to clear out the mind, to get rid of your fear, your idolatry, your resentment, your sense of entitlement, allows you to then be still and make some choices so that when you go forward in life, you're better postured for things. Um, one of the things I was highlighting in the first point is just there are practical reasons why prayer is hard. It just, it takes a focus that many of us don't have. But there are deeper theological reasons why prayer is hard. And one of the reasons that being still before God is challenging is because there's a vulnerability to it that makes it in an uncomfortable space. And when we're uncomfortable, we want something like a TikTok video to just stimulate and distract us. The discomfort of coming before God, not knowing if you could admit to God you don't fully trust God, or fearing that God may not be pleased with you, or concerned knowing the way your mind works. If you ask of God and God doesn't answer, the inevitable lesson will be never ask anything else of God. There's a risk, there's a vulnerability to prayer that requires theology, vulnerability, patience, that keeps us from praying. So with Adam and Eve, they didn't have that. But once you introduce the will, now here's something that I want that's different from God. There's a bit of tension there. And so what do they do? Well, I want this. Now I can seek God for wisdom on this or the foundation of that. I'm learning to ask forgiveness before permission because the idea is if I want it, I believe it's good. And the problem with having it will be the damage it does with the person who doesn't want it. So I will try the best of both worlds to enjoy it and then to have the reconciliation because God is merciful. We're missing the piece that God is wise. You want it, but you're misunderstanding it. It's not simply that you'll get to enjoy it and then be restored to God, but you will find that God was right. And now you will be restored to God because God is gracious. But the after effects of the lack of wisdom in your choices will remain with you. And that's part of what we need to work out in prayer. So for Adam and Eve, the issue of the will, I want this, but I don't know that God wants me to have it, so I'm not gonna wait to ask, is the kind of mistake that gets at one of the reasons we don't pray. For some of you, pray, some of you, your fear is that you will not hear from God. But for some of you, the fear is that you will. It could be terrifying to think if God was constantly in my life telling me what to do, how many things would he ask me to do that I would not want to do? In the middle of the board meeting, stand up and be like, I know that we're talking about reviewing this year's finances, but I want to be aware that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I just thought I should tell you that. Some of you are terrified that that is how God is going to manage your life. So we look for a safe kind of prayer life where we throw up our little things, we try to be faithful enough, and we're missing out on the, the restorative work, the restoration, the fellowship with God. And so it's helpful to, to reflect on the will of God, God who is good, God who is wise, God who is gracious. And where do we see the will of God in the Bible? Well, we're always told that if you really wanna know what God is like, look at Jesus, the Son of God who comes into the world. And what is it that Jesus wanted? And perhaps the most famous prayer request, and I suspect famous just because of our own vulnerability, our own fear, our own disillusionment with faith. The most famous prayer request for many of us is the prayer that he asked that didn't seem to be answered as he wanted, which is the night before he was crucified, 
uh, his knowing why he came, his agreeing to having come, his awareness that his coming and what he would face was good, but feeling the reality of it within 24 hours. Take this from me, Father. Uh, that's what he wanted in that moment. But why was he able in that moment to say, but not my will, but yours be done? There is a religious passivity where we're not assertive with God. Jesus is not role modeling that. Jesus is anchored in the trustworthiness of the Father, the goodness of God's purposes. And so the honest reality is, I don't want to face this. But his ability to say, but not my will be done but yours is because that was not the only prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your son so that the son could glorify you. Jesus told the disciples, I prayed not that the father would take you out of the world, but that he would protect you from the evil one. He tells the church, I have prayed for those who would believe in the gospel message that you'd be one, even as we are one. He was being nailed to the cross and he prayed, Father, forgive the people crucifying me because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus had a lot of things that he wanted, and it would seem that the bulk of his prayers were answered. But in the wisdom of God, answering all of those prayers included saying no to that one thing that Jesus knew he needed to do, but felt he didn't want to. Father, take this from me. And the will of God was his glory, grace extended to his, to his people, the salvation of all and the putting down of evil. And the plan of God was that God himself would bear it. It's not easy, but if God's will is renewal, restoration, forgiveness, grace, somebody needs to deal with the mess. The gospel message is Jesus's prayer there was not answered so that when you pray, Lord, don't forsake me, you could be confident the word won't. Jesus was not spared that kind of death so that all who hope in him would be spared that kind of death. And what that tells us is if we reflect on the nature of God and his will, his will for good, his will for our good, that he has a sacrificial love, that framework, meditating on that, helps you with the confusion of, Lord, here's a thing that I want and you're not giving me. Are you like everyone else who's stingy? Do I need to prove myself to you? The thoughts that seem very reasonable need to be framed within a gospel context. Let the scriptures guide you. Let God be your mentor so that you take that experience and you realize there's confusion in it. And we need that big picture to lead us through. Um, yesterday, I was talking on the car ride back with the elders from the retreat about this. And one of the things that came up that made me remember how much I loved being a parent of young children. So I have three kids, uh, two of them college age. Um, one-year-olds, three-year-olds, cute, beautiful. You open up photos. What a wonderful period of time. I miss it. I remember being exhausted. I remember loving certain hours of it, but having a lot more hours where you're trying to care for somebody who can't communicate in the midst of whatever thing you're doing. I remember thinking, I can't wait for this to be over. I remember thinking at the time, I, I can't do this. Um, it's easy to look back now, and it's not sugarcoated. It's not that it was wonderful and it was easy and it was the, the magical, it was hard, I was tired, but I look back and it was good. Um, one of the people in the car is close enough to that with young children, still experiencing a bit of exhaustion, was saying that photos around the house of the first birthday, of family together, that picture puts in context 
that third hour where you can't stop the crying and you think, I don't want to do this. And then you see the goodness and you remember that goodness is good enough that it puts this in perspective. So do I want more of this? No. Would I like to be a parent six hours a week? Yes. But here it is. And, and I don't like this, but, but there's goodness and, and that helps you through. The gospel framework about God's care and provision and mercy is essential for you to sit down and say, right now, I don't know why I don't have this. I don't know why I'm facing this. But here's the thing. I, I know that God is with me, that God is for me. I know the, the word of scripture is true. So right now, maybe I want to walk away from the faith. Maybe I want to create my own angle in it. Or uh, maybe I'm just going to do what I need to, hoping that it one day God rewards me. And, and the gospel picture says, but look at the goodness and, and take this moment. And that's what the writer, writer of Psalm 27 is doing. There are enemies around him. And that indeed, uh, verse 12, um, you know, do not give me up to the will of my adversaries. False witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. And the gospel is, well, God knows that experience. Jesus faced false witnesses. They breathed out violence on him but he was not given up to their will. He remained within the will of the Father. So now God will not give you up to the will of your adversaries. And so that framework changes things. What the world tries to do is to get you to look at what you don't have and create a logic out of that. Here's what you don't have. So what are the implications of whether or not you should go to God? God is not giving you this so think, why would you go to God for other things? The gospel picture is look at Jesus and remember God has given you this. Now the question is why would you not go to God with everything? And it's a different way of seeing things. It's, it's, it's not a way of escaping our problems. I don't remember having a one-year-old and thinking it was a party all the time. I remember it was hard. I remember my own frustrations, my own limits, the difficulties of parenting children, but, but I remember the goodness and how God brought us through. In real time, right now, some of you have decisions where you're grappling with just the hardness of life and the patience of enduring with God, of trusting somehow God is there. And you could keep asking, you could keep watching that somehow you will see God's wisdom and care. We have to frame that in that if, if if Jesus was willing to suffer death for us, if God would give us that to spare us, then why would we not take everything to him and have our first assumption be we can trust him with what we don't know? So I want to encourage you to that kind of devotional life. Uh, verse six, now my head shall be lifted up. Life wears us down. And then we, we don't have the strength to look up to God. We don't have the courage. We don't want to look up to God. Here's somebody who says, but I'm going to seek him first. And then once I've looked up to God, I'm going back into the world with my head lifted up. I'm now ready to face the challenges of this week. In verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So it's not like the land of the living is going to be miserable, but if I can make it through, the land of the angelic will be fine. I believe that despite what I'm seeing, somehow God's goodness will be part of this story. I'm going to believe it. And then when you watch for it, you see it. So the question of this Psalm in verse one, whom shall I fear, is not a question for God. It's not the question he comes, God, I'm afraid. 
He comes knowing he's afraid and seeking God. And somehow the question, not that you ask God, whom should I fear, but the question that he was grappling with seems to have been resolved. He seems to be hinting that he knows he does not need to fear his adversaries. So God, I'm coming to you. Don't hand me over to the bull of my enemies. Uh, God, they're breathing out false truths. God, I have things that I want and they're in the way of. What do I do? Somehow that process led him to say, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so whom shall I fear? <laughs> he didn't have every question answered, but he got a new question to remind him, um, God is good, he can trust him. And so draw near to God, uh, seek God regularly with fellowship and watch for his goodness. Let me pray for us. Our Father, no matter how many times any of us have heard these kinds of things, most of us are not doing it. We're distracted, we're overwhelmed, we're fearful, we're cynical. And some of us may be not praying at all or uh, purposely staying away from you. Lord, we want wisdom, we want life, we want grace. And what you have made known through Jesus and his message is that there is life for all who will believe. There's hope for every one of us regardless of what we've done. And so, Lord, subdue our frustration and our self-pity and, uh, and the weird way we're piecing things together and give us clarity. We pray for relief and freedom. We pray for healing. We pray for hope. And we pray that in our assembly today, uh, we would go back into the world ready uh, to make choices, to do hard things, to rejoice at all that's good, whatever it is you have for us. But uh, strengthen each of us and help us to encourage one another in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.